0: So uh, before we get started, let's pray. Father God, it is indeed an honor and a privilege to to be able to preach and teach your word this morning. God, I just ask that you would take away the distractions of the day, the distractions in the morning, the weekend, that you would move me out of your way, and that the words that I speak would be uh, clear, they would be understandable, and most of all, they would edify and lift you up and make you great. For you are indeed great and you are holy. God, open our ears that we would hear the truth that you would have us to hear this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, last week Brother Rusty preached on verses 1 through 16. And in these verses we discovered that the enemy's plot against Nehemiah was revealed. In the first part of these verses, we learned that the enemies of Nehemiah, in in particular... Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem were nothing if they weren't persistent. Their intent was to deceive Nehemiah and lure him into a trap, to take him away from the work that God had called Nehemiah to. Jeremiah 17:9 reminds us that the heart of a man is deceitful and against God. These three guys, these three guys, were clearly opposed to God and his calling on Nehemiah. As the account continues forward in verses 3 and 4, we find that Nehemiah would not be distracted. Four times, four times, these enemies tried to pull him away from his work and into a trap. But Nehemiah would not give in. This is a great reminder for us that oftentimes we are tempted to be distracted from our work for the kingdom. It's easy for us to give in to constant badgering of the world. You know what it's like. Cell phones, emails, you name it, kids, neighbors, and so forth. But we're called to be persistent and avoid these distractions in our lives. Focus on Christ and what he has called you and me to do. For Nehemiah, when their lures away from the work failed, the enemy next turned to false accusations. They accused Nehemiah in a not-so-subtle way using an open letter that his actions were treasonous against King Artaxerxes. So why is the fact that it was an open letter important? Well, because official correspondence in the day, in that day, was typically rolled up and sealed with a signet. And that seal was was an official seal on that scroll. An open letter, on the other hand, was basically a sign of disrespect to the recipient. And likewise, it suggested that the information was common in public knowledge. So think about this. These three were hoping that the lie would be told often enough and be just believable enough that it would move Nehemiah to leave his work. Today, we know the world is full of these type of people. And it's not just politicians, it's not just activists, it's not just business leaders. No, in fact, it's also in our churches today. In some churches today, the pulpit is full of people who want to equate belief with health and wealth. They water down scripture to be the consistency of skim milk. And if you've had skim milk, you know what I mean. And that's if they bother to mention scripture at all. Some want you to believe that you can just pray a prayer without true repentance and a changed heart. Brothers and sisters, this morning it is a lie. It is not the truth. We have to repent. This means we have to turn from our old ways and believe that Jesus is the Son of God, fully man and fully God. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul states, For a time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. How sad it is we see that in churches today. Brothers, we must give the world what it needs, not what it wants. Last week, Rusty used an M&M illustration, and quite frankly, it was spot on. No offense to the kids in here. But we can give our children meals of M&Ms for breakfast, for lunch, and dinner. They like that a lot, I think. That's the easy route. And to just give them what they want, it's to make them happy, right? But does it really make them happy? Maybe temporarily. But you know the sugar crash that soon follows, right? No, a lifetime or even a season of junk food and candy leads to all sorts of ailments and illnesses later on. We should give them healthy food because it's what they need to grow into healthy and responsible adults. Healthy food equals healthy doctrine. Amen? Now, as the account continues, Nehemiah calls the deceivers out. He says, no, you're making this story up. Then he does what we should all do. He turns to God and asks God to strengthen my hands. He's asking God to help him make uh, to make him and the people work harder and with more resolve. Nehemiah knew that God is trustworthy. He knew that God was faithful. God is dependable. We should follow Nehemiah's example. Don't be afraid to cry out to God when you are tempted or slandered. He will always be faithful. Next, we found out that Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem hired a false prophet, his name was Shemaiah to encourage Nehemiah to run and hide into the temple. Shemaiah was actually on their payroll, and Nehemiah knew about it by God's providence. Nehemiah was not a priest, and he had entered the temple, and had he entered the temple and shut himself off, it would have been a desecration to the house of God. Nehemiah knew better. He knew this action would bring him shame and could possibly lead to his death. Nehemiah once again trusted God. We know that the enemies of God seek to give believers a bad name. The world looks for examples of fallen Christians. The deceiver, Satan, knows he cannot have a true believer's soul. But the deceiver also knows that he can influence a non-believer, he can discourage him from seeking the truth, and he can keep him downtrodden in his sin. Friends, don't give the deceiver this victory. Back to our verses, they attempted to get Nehemiah to fear and to do wrong. But Nehemiah, once again, sought God. (coughs) He knew where to turn. So as we conclude this section that Rusty covered, we see that the wall around the temple was completed in 52 days. What an amazing feat. Think about that, 52 days. I'm in the construction business, and I can tell you that eight weeks goes really fast. But with God, anything is possible in his will. We are his, and what he accomplishes on our behalf, in and through us, and oftentimes in spite of us, should be done to bring him glory, not us. So in verse 16, we find that the enemy and their people were discouraged, and they realized that all this had been accomplished and had been done by the grace of God. Ephesians 1 and 2 reminds us that we are his workmanship, We are to do all all things to his glory. Our works are an evidence of our saving grace to the praise of his glory, not ours. Last week, Rusty asked a couple of questions about tragedy. Is it more tragic to come to a premature end of your life, having fully served God as you were called? Or is it more tragic to live your golden years motoring about in an RV or in a boat Collecting seashells on the beach. Think about it. Which is more tragic? And also, as Rusty said, wherever there is a need, we are to go. Wherever there is a need, we are to go. This doesn't stop at 40 years old. It doesn't stop at 50, or 60, or 70, or 80. We are called to serve the king to the praise of his glory. Amen. Now, as we move forward into the verses for today, you'll see that we're covering a fair amount of territory. We're going to be looking at verses chapter 6, verses 17 through chapter 7, 73. So I would be glad to change places with Jason if he'd like to come back to uh, go through the readings, which we'll get to. But I want to go back to chapter 6, verses 15 and 16 real quick. I don't think it's, it may be on the slide. It is. So the wall was finished on the 21st day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. When all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid, and they fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. As we begin in our verses, let's look closely at this. The completion of the wall was not The end, it's the beginning, and that's in your outline. Completion of the wall is not the end, but it's the beginning. Once again, think about it. 52 days this was done from approximately August 1st to September 21st in the year 445 B.C. Not a small feat at all to God be the glory. In verse 16, we even see that Nehemiah's enemies, they had to acknowledge that God was responsible. Now let's move into verses 17 through 19. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. And his son Jehoahan had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Barak- Barakai, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. So here we see that the opposition is still there. It's alive and it's active. The opposition is alive and active. Now there's some disagreement among scholars that this section may be kind of a bit of a footnote. But this is possibly here to indicate that certain nobles of Judah who refused to work were in alliance with Tobiah because, though he was an Ammonite, he married into a fairly respectable Jewish family. Tobiah had worked against the efforts to rebuild the wall, and now nobles in Judah were corresponding with him. This internal threat, which was laced with disloyalty, will continue throughout the rest of the book. We are seeing a power grab being orchestrated at the higher levels of Jewish society. In verse 18, we see that he held multiple binding agreements, probably trade contracts, that were facilitated by his marriage connections. In the mind of Tobiah and his loyalists, these contracts were possibly threatened by the supposed isolation that would evolve as a function of the completion of the wall. This tangled web created an environment that split the loyalties of some due to financial interests. Now, today, we as believers need to be well aware of contracts and connections that we make. And this includes social media, by the way. Don't allow our associations and business dealings to become an impediment or obstacle to your ministry. Questionable dealings, even with the slightest hint of impropriety, can and will be potentially follow us for a lifetime. This is why we must strive at all times to live a life that is honoring to God. In verse 19, we see the Jews coming to Nehemiah and speaking well of Tobiah. Think about that. This guy has been undermining the efforts of Nehemiah the entire time. And now some of the people are coming and saying, Hey, this guy's not so bad. Eh, He's a little dirty around the edges, but he's okay. Okay. Tobiah had done everything in his power to undermine God and the rebuilding of the wall. Not only did they speak well of him, they reported back to Tobiah the things that Nehemiah had said. Tobiah was clearly unrepentant, and he he continued to be opposed to Nehemiah. Verses 1 through 5, chapter 7. What we see here is a new beginning. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananai and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a oops. for he was more faithful and God-fearing, uh, a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it, into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. We'll stop there for a second. So the list of names that follow in this chapter, and there are many, trust me, as you will find out. This gives us an outline of what what becomes basically the effort to repopulate Jerusalem. But first, notice in the beginning of this section, the order in which Nehemiah records the actions taken. First, he secures the city. Second, he establishes leadership. Third, he honors citizenship. And fourth, he begins and ends with worship. So what's the first thing he did? He secured the city by setting up the doors. This is an important point to pause at and consider. For once in a long, long time, the city is finally fully secured. Next, he goes in and establishes leadership. First, the singers and the Levites were appointed. The action of worship and worship leaders were a priority. Worship itself is foundational to God, his people, and his city. These two groups were appointed not for the gates of the city, but instead to service at the gates of the temple. So next, political, and I use that kind of in air quotes, political leaders were appointed. Man, what a difference the day and time makes, doesn't it? These men were chosen for their character and their spiritual maturity. Character matters. Even the char- uh, even evidence of character is crucial before authority can be given. Hananiah was the brother of Nehemiah and is the same Hananiah from chapter 1. He's the one that brought the sad news of the remnant and the desolation of Jerusalem. Nehemiah appoints Hananiah and Hananiah as joint leaders of the city because of their faithfulness and fear of the Lord. Scripture says that their faithfulness and fear of the Lord were more than many. These were men who feared God, and fearing God is key. So, in contrast, when you fear people, your aim is to please people. If you live for the approval of people, you'll be crushed by their criticism. Let me repeat that. If you live for the approval of people, you'll be crushed by their criticism. People will fail you, I promise you. It's guaranteed. Husbands and wives, children, friends. How many times think back that a promise was made and not kept? I'll oh, think about it, and that doesn't become action. Is my no, no, is my yes, yes. However, when you fear God, you will seek to please God. Proverbs 9 and Psalm 111, 111 remind us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We need wise leaders that will make wise decisions, just as the Jews of the day did. Leaders must fear the Lord. But let me stop here for a second and emphasize something, that the leaders of your church, John, myself, and Rusty, we covet your prayers. Pray that we will be men of faithfulness, and we will be men that truly fear God. Likewise, we should all pray for our governmental leaders to be faithful and fearful. Dallas Theological Seminary professor Howard Hendricks suggests what we should look for in a leader. He says that we should look for a leader that is fat. Now, I'm not talking about a waistline, though I could be, but he's not. He's talking about a leader that is three things. First, that leader is faithful. Those that are responsible with small things, God will entrust with the greater things. He asks us to look for a uh, leader that is available. Do they make time and are they willing to serve? And finally, look for a leader that is teachable. Are they humble enough to keep growing and learning? We want fat leaders is what we want. Now, moving down into verse 5. You see that Nehemiah honors uh, citizenship. Nehemiah is sensitive to God's leanings. Throughout the book, he claimed the hand of God was at work in all circumstances. If you have your Bible handy, let's take and flip to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8. And I'm going to read from NASB. And the letter to Asaph, Asaphath, the keeper of the king's forest, "...that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me." We head ahead to verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 18. "...I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Once again, the hand of God. And finally, flip forward to Nehemiah 6, verse 9. Nehemiah 6, verse 9. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah was indeed sensitive to God's leanings. In verses 6 through 63, Nehemiah is giving us a list that is essentially a repeat of Ezra 2. This is an accounting, if you will, of the Jewish people in order to repopulate Jerusalem. Here we will see that citizenship matters. Because he recalls the first set of returnees, we are seeing Nehemiah establishing who the Jews were so he could establish who could live in Jerusalem. Let's start this section of scripture by acknowledging one thing. All scripture is valuable for teaching. All scripture is valuable for teaching. God values every person, so they are named by family group. He didn't write, there were a bunch of people here and there were a bunch of people there. No. He sees value in listing them. Each person from each group matters to the Lord. You matter to the Lord by name. Note also that each role counts as well. Nehemiah was meticulous in listing to people by their roles. Your role in the church matters to God. Membership and citizenship matter to God. For Nehemiah and Jerusalem, this was especially true. From verse 4, we know that there was an abundance of land with no homes rebuilt. But people were returning to their own cities, but before they can claim land or property... he carefully lists who the true citizens were. Citizens will have, right, will have a right to take and possess the land. It was crucial to know who had rights to that land to reduce the chance for future disagreement and future dissension. So now we're going to dive into reading lists of names. We're going to look first at Nehemiah 7, 6 through 38. This is where I would like to trade with Jason. Nehemiah seven six through thirty eight. This is a list of the rank. What we'll call the rank and file people. These were the, the, the common people of of uh, the common Jewish people. Verse six. These were the people of the province who came up out of the. Kek- of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvaya, Nahum, Banah. Now to verse 8. The number of the men of the people of Israel. The sons of Parash, 2,172. The sons of Seph-Atiah, 3,72. The sons of Ara, 6,52. The sons of Pahath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zakiah, uh, 760. The son of the sons of Benuai, 648. The sons of Babiah, 628. The sons of Asgad, 2322 the sons of Adonakam, 667, the sons of Bigviah, 2067, the sons of Aden, 655, the sons of Attar, namely of Hezekiah, 98, the sons of Hashem, 328, the sons of Beziah, 324, the sons of Heraph, 112, the sons of Gibeon, 95, the men of Bethlehem and Netophah, one eighty-eight, the men of Anathoth. Uh, Anathoth, sorry. One twenty-eight, the men of Beth Asmaveth. Forty-two, the men's of Kiriath, the men of Kiriath, Jerem, Sephera and uh, Beroth, Seven forty-three, the men's of the men of Ramah and Gibeah. Six twenty-one, the men of Mikmas, One twenty-two the men of Bethel and Ai, 123, the men of the other Nebo, 52, the sons of the other Elam, 1254, the sons of Haram, 320, the sons of Jericho, 345, the sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721, the sons of Sinah 3930. Next, we read the names of the priests. The priests, the son of Jedidiah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Emur, 1052. The sons of Pashur, 1247. The sons of Haram, 1017. Next, verses 43 through 45 list the Levites. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely Cadmiel, the sons of uh, Hodavah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atar, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hataya, the sons of Shabiah, 138. 46 through 56, the servants. The temple servants, the sons of Ziah, the sons of Hashapah, the sons of Tabeoth, the sons of Karos, the sons of Siah, the sons of Padon, the sons of Labana, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Shammaiah, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Riaha, the sons of Rezan, the sons of Nikoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uza, the sons of Pesia, the sons of Bisai, the sons of Mehonim, the sons of Nefoshusim, I believe. The sons of Bacchus, the sons of Hacufa, the sons of Har-Her, the sons of Vazlith, the sons of Mediah, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barcos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tama, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatapha. We're close. Hang in there with me. Nehemiah 7, 57 through 60, we have Solomon's servants listed. The sons of Solomon's servants the sons of Sotaiah, the sons of Sofareth, the sons of Parida, the sons of Jalah, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hitel, the sons of Pakareth, Bayam, the sons of Amon, All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. It's interesting here that Nehemiah now shifts the listing of those residents of questionable descendancy. Now, this is important to note because this group of residents likely would have no privileges and no rights to property. Verses 61 through 65, the following are those who came up from Tel uh, Telharsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descendant whether they belong to Israel. The sons of Delaiah, uh, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobeah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of uh, Barzilia, uh, Barzilla, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzilla, the Gideadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it wasn't found there. But it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. So since their names weren't found in the genealogies, they couldn't hold certain roles or responsibilities, or they couldn't even possess property. By calling them out, Nehemiah was, in fact, honoring the true citizens of Jerusalem. Most nations take citizenship very seriously, but in the U.S., citizenship itself is under assault. Yet, as we see here, in Nehemiah's time, citizenship citizenship truly does matter. It's important to note that citizenship is a privilege that has benefits, but also great responsibility. In those times, the responsibility was the ability to own land and property. Looking at verses 66 through 72, we have God honoring giving by the citizens. God honoring giving by the citizens. Verse 66. The whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules, 245, their camels, 435, and their donkeys, 6,720. That was going to get me eventually. Verse 70, now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury the work 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. So why did they give? Why did they give? Part of the responsibility of citizenship is investing back into your community. Much like our tithe today is a return of God's provision to further the ministry of the local church, Nehemiah's people knew that the size of the task at hand was enormous. They gave, and we give, to honor God's generosity towards us. Paul says in part in 1 Timothy 5.18 that the worker deserves his wages. Here we see God's people being encouraged to support God's people who are laboring for the kingdom of God. Finally, verse 73. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. So let's jump back to verse 1 for a second. This is the hidden secret text, by the way. Nehemiah always began and ended with worship. Begin and end with worship. Worship. In verse 1, we see that the singers and the Levites were first appointed. The first thing Nehemiah does after finally securing the city is to establish the worship leaders. He prioritized worship first. And as he closes out this portion of history, we see him emphasizing a revival of sorts. As we look ahead to chapter 8, we will see that they begin with the reading and exposition of God's word. We are to be a people that worships the one true God. In our homes, in our work, in the private and intimate moments with our loved ones, when we gather for fellowship, or yes, even at sporting events. We're to worship one true God. One true God. These are the times that we're to worship. Whatever we do, whether we eat or whether we drink, we do so to bring glory to God. So how does this apply to us today? Whenever we start or restart something, we should follow Nehemiah's example. First, rebuild your fortress or your city. Does that mean we should start stacking stones around our house? I know down here sometimes we stack sandbags around our house because of hurricanes. But should we be stacking stones around our house? Not necessarily, no. But if the structure of your home or your business, or your church is broken or failing, fix it. How? Here's a few ideas. Get your finances straight. As a church, amend your constitution. Begin to honor your mom and dad. Start loving your wife as Christ loves the church. Begin to honor your husband by encouraging him to lead. Look for ways to serve the church in meaningful boots on-ground ways. Don't allow division to creep into your house or church. We repeat that: Don't allow division to creep into your house or your church. And maybe, just maybe crazy thought here. for a night or maybe two, turn off your devices. Hmm. Turn off your devices and interact with one another. Fellowship. Yes, you can even play cards. It's okay. Interact with one another. The second thing we see him do is establish, or that we need to do, is establish or reestablish true leadership in our lives. In your life, is it you or is it Jesus? Will you make the decisions or will you seek the Lord first? Is it, this is what I want to do. Instead, surrender your desires to Jesus. Die to your sins on a daily basis. Allow the grace that saved you to sustain you. Ultimately, ask Jesus, what do you think? Third, honor your citizenship responsibility as a born-again believer. What does that mean? As heavenly citizens, we are responsible for letting our family, our friends, and our co-workers know that there's a Savior that can take away their sins. It's not enough to know about Jesus. You have to answer his call. That's our responsibility. Don't allow one close to you to hear the words, depart from me, for I never knew you. It doesn't matter where you are or who you are with, invite them to church. If the opportunity presents itself, share the story of your own salvation. There's nothing truer and greater than the story of your own salvation. Share the good news of Jesus Christ. That's my, my request this morning. Let's pray.